Well, good morning, Life Fellowship. It's great to see you today. It's been several weeks. My name is Dan. I'm one of the teaching pastors here. And uh, many of you know, and I think Jason alluded to it earlier, I've been gone for 32 days, I believe it was, on a wonderful missions trip around the world with one of our elders, um, Bob Williamson, and for a time also uh, another one of our elders, Steve Robertson and his wife Michelle, joined us for the last third of it as well. Uh, But it was a terrific time. And I want to say publicly how much I appreciate uh, the elders, the missions team of this church, the staff who all joined together making it possible for me to be gone for um, a whole month. Uh, It's difficult. One of the blessings of having team leadership the way we do at Life Fellowship where we don't have everything resting on the shoulders of one individual, but rather we spread it out, is that it allows us to multiply the ministry in various ways, some by doing leadership here and taking ownership and responsibility, and then for others of us even to be able to go out. And so um, Bob and I uh, planned this trip some time ago, and it kind of came together. It's been two years since I've been able to take a missions trip. In fact, uh, COVID was settling in as I came back from the last missions trip I took with the Wilsons, who are part of our church, and we had gone to Myanmar and uh, had been there. And then I was supposed to go to Vietnam, but COVID cut that short, and so I came directly home. That was the last time I was able to do that back in February of uh, 2019. And so I had these trips pent up, and then Bob had a couple opportunities, and so we merged them, and uh, it was just an incredible time. So the first third of the time, we were in India. And um, we were in a part of India, particularly the first part, very hostile to the gospel. India has been sometimes called the black hole of missions because uh, it is such a complex culture, a complex and large society of 1.4 billion people, um, many of whom uh, separate themselves based on geographical location, gender, caste, skin color, language, people groups. It's a very divided nation, and as such, it is a very complex nation to present the gospel. There are many hundreds of thousands of people in India who have never once even heard the name of Jesus or who would recognize the gospel in any form. So we're part of a group of businessmen from this area and a few other places around the country who are investing in different missions organizations that we were able to visit. But we saw some incredible things in uh, both northern and in southern India. Then from there, uh, we went to uh, Uganda. And several months ago, you'll remember that we had a missionary here by the name of Carol Ward. Carol has an incredible mission that's based in Gulu, uh, Uganda, uh, but also has work in other parts of Africa, and most recently in South Sudan, which was a very, very difficult part of the world, uh, very hostile to the gospel, uh, and very broken with internal disputes and civil war. Bob and I were going to go there initially, but uh, it was determined it was just a little too risky for us to be able to go the way we were planning on going. Uh, it, it would just be dangerous, not only to us, but to the people that would be with us. Uh, so we stayed and worked in in that part. Uh, We went to various villages across northern Uganda, right up close to the Sudanese, uh, South Sudanese border, and uh, in villages. We we stayed in some really dicey places that, uh, quite honestly, we'll be talking about for years. Uh, We ate some interesting things, ranging from ants to um, uh, different types of uh, African antelope, and and a few things we don't know, and we didn't really want to ask. And uh, so, but it was was a wonderful, wonderful time. And uh, let me just tell you the ministry that Carol described here we saw in person. Uh, And quite frankly, uh, Bob and I experienced and saw some things that uh, were outside of anything we've ever seen or experienced. There are demonic forces and darkness that is going on in, in, um, in, in parts of the world that our Western mind can't quite grasp until you actually see it. And even then, we have a hard time grasping it and seeing it. The darkness that Satan is capable of is truly frightening. And, uh, and we saw some of that up close and personally. And uh, at some point, I hope we'll be able to have opportunities to share those stories with you. And then from there, we went to South Africa. And the South Africa portion was not actually as much of a missions trip as it was a missions networking trip. They really didn't know what to expect. We were there as guests of Dr. Bruce Wilkinson. Uh, Many of you have heard of his preaching ministry. Earlier it was called Through the Bible, and today it's called Teach Every Nation. 
He's one that wrote a best-selling book several years ago known as The Prayer of Jabez. And uh, he has an uh, organization there now that brings people to this retreat in South Africa from all around the world, national leaders, and, uh, and trains them, equips them, and refreshes them, and then sends them back out with materials to be able to use on the mission field. And literally hundreds of thousands of people are learning and being discipled because of, of this ministry. And while we were there, we met people from Sierra Leone, from Liberia, from uh, Zimbabwe, from the Philippines, from India, from Thailand, from all over the world. And we were able to network, make contacts, and um, are in the process of developing partnerships that Life Fellowship will be able to be a part of, we believe, in the future. On top of that, I was privileged to be able to sit under the teaching of Dr. Bruce Wilkinson for a week. He was there, and, uh, and Michelle and, and Steve were able to be there, and, and so uh, we were able to enjoy that. If you follow me on social media at all, you probably saw some really cool pictures, and, and I tried to put some up of, of some of the experiences that we had. I want to also just kind of mention that because of some of the locations we were, it, I, I would put up the tourism-type pictures. I was able to hold a falcon in Dubai and able to ride a camel and, and, uh, and, and so forth. And part of the reason I want to make sure you understand that is particularly in India, it was important that we looked like we were there as tourists because the, the Hindu militant government there looks at Americans who are going over. In many cases, they do a search to find out why we might be there and what's going on. I've had friends turned away. They flew to India, turned away at the airport, required to go back home because they were on a list. So it's very important that we appeared to be uh, there for these other things. Um, and there are some pictures that just for the sake of the safety of the people with whom we worked, we just can't show you, we can't tell you where we were. But if you ever want to see him privately, I've got him on my phone. Bob's got him on, Bob's got the best camera ever, by the way, on his phone. And he'd be glad to show you as well and to be able to see some of these stories. So I could take the whole service this morning and talk about that, and I'm tempted to do it. But we are in the midst of Holy Week starting today, and we are in the midst of a series on the cross. And I've just been anxious to get back to it. I've been trying to check in when I could on basically Sunday night, uh, whenever we were watching the services here, but to pop in and, and uh, be blessed by the worship, be blessed by the teaching of Pastor Ben, and, uh, and, uh, and I'm just excited to be able to teach again this week as part of this series. We read Revelation chapter 5, and uh, I'll talk a little bit more about, about the passage and, and the scripture a little bit and, and the significance of it, but I just want to just mention, because many of us who, who grew up in church this is a special Sunday. Many times if you went to Sunday school as a kid, uh, you, you come out with a single palm frond. Um, and I really didn't know what they were about because I grew up in Missouri. We didn't have any palm fronds uh, there. Uh, but later I moved to Florida and uh, uh, realized there's lots of different kinds of palm fronds actually. But the palm fronds were a part of how we were taught as kids, how they lined the streets of Jerusalem as he descended, as Jesus and the disciples descended from the mount there and, and came into the street and Jesus was on the back of a, of a, of a white colt, a white donkey, and, and they laid the palms down as respect and reference. And, 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 and everybody was worshiping and saying, Hosanna, the Messiah has come. And it was such an exciting day and the disciples were taken back. And, 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 and there was just like this little glimpse of, oh, maybe they believe, maybe they believe. And yet just a few days later, they'd be crucifying that same Savior that they laid the palm fronds down in front of just the week before. And, and, and the dichotomy, the, the digression of, of value and, and worship that, that happened in this week is startling and yet indicative of a world that plays around with the Messiah but never truly worships him. But now today we're not going to spend time on that passage, but we're going to jump forward in history. We're going to look to the future and we're going to see that real worship that comes because of the Messiah, because of the Savior, because of the cross. You see, because without the cross, the story that leads to the real worship of heaven would not and could not occur. So as we've looked at these various dimensions of the cross over the last several weeks, and as we've considered what it represents and how we should view it and, 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 and how God has used the symbol of it in the future, today as we get ready to 
express our worship over the resurrection next Sunday. And as we think this week on Tuesday night as we participate in the activity that we have here, as we consider on Good Friday, as we take communion and fellowship together, as we observe the Seder meal on Saturday night as a church family, and remember the symbolism of the Passover, and then on resurrection morning, the Super Bowl of Sundays in the Christian calendar next week, and thank God there's no COVID or whatever COVID is left. Is it going to keep us from joining together this year after a couple of years of difficulty? And we celebrate the risen Savior as we look at the cross, the power of the cross that resulted in our salvation, our redemption, our reconciliation. It ought to stir in our hearts at its very foundation, at its very base, a desire to join the heavenly throngs of all the ages, and shout, Hosanna, we worship you, we love you, thank you for what you have done. And it is that cross, it is that cross on which Christ died that reminds us that he is worthy of worship. So we're going to fast forward. We've looked at Revelation. You heard it read this morning. And remember this, that as we look to the future, and by the way, Revelation is such a cool book, isn't it? You know, Pastor Ben and I do this. Every once in a while we'll say, what book of the Bible would you like for us to study next? And without a doubt, and by a far cry, number one, it's always Revelation. When I was growing up, there, I used to call them Revelation groupies. Uh, prophecy groupies, because there were certain pastors that would that would go around the country back in the 70s and 80s. A guy by the name of uh, Hal Lindsey wrote a book, The Late Great Planet Earth. Anybody of you remember that? Uh, and then, anybody remember Jack Van Impey? Uh, yeah, he used to be on TV with his wife, Rexella. And, uh, and oh, I used to just be so interested in him. And, and there were several others that that, uh, uh, that would do this, but, and boy, they would go and they would have a Bible conference. Everybody would come and, and they well, who's the Antichrist? Uh, I, I remember back in the 70s, the Antichrist was Henry Kissinger. And that, that was who it was going to be. I mean, I knew people that just believed that Henry Kissinger was the Antichrist. And, and then in the 90s, it was somebody else. And, 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 you know, I remember even some crazy people saying it was Obama at one point. You know, every time a new, and I've heard Trump. And I've heard, you know, every, there's, everybody's always looking for the Antichrist. I, I, I believe it's going to surprise everybody, you know, who and what the Antichrist is all about. But, but uh, and, and then is there a rapture? And if there is a rapture, does it occur in the beginning of the seven years or in the middle of the seven years or at the end of the seven years? And, and we all like to speculate. And, and when I was a kid, they'd have this guy come and he would talk about it. And he had a, a set of charts by a guy in the name of Larkin. And Larkin's charts were big. And boy, they would show all the dates and, and, and so forth. And it was fascinating. We're not going to do that this morning, okay? <laughs> all right. We're not going to do that. I'm not going to answer all the mysteries of Revelation because I'll be real honest with you, I don't have a clue. All right? The things I used to just be really sure about, I'm not quite as sure about. The things I used to just dismiss, I think, well, that's a possibility. The longer I study, and, and that people are always asking me, well, Dan, when it comes to your eschatology, what are you? And I always say, confused, confused, <laughs> you know? For whatever reason, um, you know, I'm just not smart enough to figure it out. And a lot of people who I thought were weren't, uh, if you set dates, I'm automatically going to dismiss you uh, and, and so forth. But that doesn't mean we ought to ignore the book of Revelation because there is a lot in there that we can see and learn from and know for sure. And that's how I want to approach it this morning. So I'm not going to unlock the great mysteries of the seven seals. But what I do want you to see is a glimpse into what we will experience and the great drama that unfolds even today in heaven and will be culminating in the future in heaven as the mysteries of the book of Revelation become obvious and revealed. But there is one thing we cannot deny, no matter what eschatological positions you hold, there is one thing that you cannot deny, and that is this. Jesus Christ, through his death on the cross, made reconciliation with the creator of the universe possible. And he is worthy of worship. And around the throne of God, the saints of all the ages, the redeemed, the bride of Christ, 
the church of our Savior, will gather with the heavenly hosts, those that we have never seen but we know exist, will gather around the throne and we will celebrate the awesomeness, the majesty, the authority, the compassion, the grace, and the love of our God that was demonstrated at the cross of Calvary. In a stunning display of self-sacrifice and of injustice and of unconditional love and unfathomable forgiveness, at the cross, at the cross, we see the light that is Jesus Christ. And so as we look into this passage, we see much of this prophetic imagery being laid out for us. The book of Revelation is one of the most fascinating, mysterious books of the Bible. There's no question about it. And in chapter 5, we're introduced, we are given a glimpse inside the, the throne room of heaven, a place that is occupied by the Godhead. It's a place of mysterious significance and authority. And in this scene that we see played out in Revelation 5, we have a dilemma. There's a dilemma. We didn't read the first five verses. I'm going to read them for you real quickly because I think they're important because it sets up the dilemma. In verse 1 of chapter 5, it says, I saw on the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I, this is speaking of John, who received this prophetic message, and I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And that was what preceded what was read from the passage this morning. This dilemma, the scroll, seven seals. We won't look into all the theories of what that represents, but most Bible scholars believe that it was probably represents the deed of possession to the created earth. The deed of possession, the, the, the who gets to rule creation. Who possesses this? And, and, and many have tried, have they not, over the years? We look back, the first person who wanted it was Satan himself. He's the one who said, I'll sit on the throne of God. I'll have authority in my hand. I'll, and he over and over again in a prideful intonation, declared that he should have the right to the deed of title to this creation. God said, oh no, oh no. But even... Unworthy men have tried over the years, and the scriptures filled with people from Nebuchadnezzar to Darius to, 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 to others who would have lifted themselves up. And then history records others. We got Alexander the Great, we've got the Roman Caesars who wanted to conquer the world. There's Attila the Hun and Genghis Khan and, and, and the, Napoleon, and even in the last century, you got people like Lenin and Stalin and Hitler and Mao and maybe even Putin, who thought that they could be the one that would rule and reign over the entire world. But we know this, that try as man and Satan can, will, and have, there is only one. Only one who is worthy to hold possession of what God created on this planet. So if you were to break down chapter 5 into, into three quick sections, and, and you can just jot these down you know, and, and look at them later and kind of explore it for yourself. The, the first part, the first five verses is basically a search. Who can open this book? So there's this search for who is worthy. Now, it's rhetorical. God knew the answer. He designed the answer. But for us who are observing it and we're needing to see the, 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 the story play out, 
That's the question at hand. And, and for John, it caused great consternation. He said, I was weeping really loudly. <laughs> There's no one. I'm not worthy. The angels aren't worthy. No one who's ever tried before was worthy. What are we going to do? Who gets to rule? Who gets to hold authority over the world? And then when the elder said, hang on just a moment, there is one. There is one. And that was the selection, which you see in the middle part of the chapter. So there's the search, and then there's the selection. And, and, and the scripture records it. There is one who is worthy. He is the Lion of Judah. He is from the root of David. He is the Lamb of God. I wish I could just take an entire sermon and just, just, just explain those three things because when you see the term Lion of Judah, this comes from the tribe of Judah, one of the 12 tribes, and it was the, it was the kingly tribe. It was the tribe that the kings would descend from. There were other tribes who had other blessings placed upon them, but, and, and it was a complex story, and I, I just want to, but I don't have the time to go through it. But, but when you see Judah mentioned in Scripture... Think David, think the kings, think the authority of the throne of Israel. And, and that's what, what played out here. And often we, we, we refer to the Lord as the Lion of Judah. He is that descendant who sits on David's throne. He is that, he is that one who has the authority of heaven to rule and reign, not just over Israel, but over the entire world. It, we see it portrayed in, in, you know, in Aslan, in the lion, the witch, in the, in the wardrobe. He is the great lion, he, and, and we see this portrayal of Christ as a lion. But then also we have this juxtaposition, this, this, this weird character beyond that. And by the way, the root of David, again, speaks of the kingly succession. And so when it says the lion of Judah, the root of David, they're, they're very much integrated and connected. But then we see the lamb of God. The lamb. Now, now, hang on just a moment, because, you know, we were in Africa. I didn't see any lambs walking by the lions. You know, they don't play together. In fact, there's a prophetic verse where it talks about the lion laying down next to the lamb. But that's, you know, lions look at lambs and think lunch. I mean, that's, that, I mean, that's what they do. So how do you, how do you have these two things? And, and, and here's the reality. Where lion of Judah is mentioned frequently in both the Old and New Testament, the term lamb of God we use frequently in worship today, but that isn't a particularly familiar term in the vast majority of the Bible. For instance, in the Old Testament, the Lamb of God is, or Jesus is referred to as the Lamb of God only one time. And that's in Isaiah chapter 53, when it talks about the lamb before the shearer is dumb. It, it, it's submissive uh, and, and, and so forth. And if you've ever been around sheep, you know that, that they can be very, very passive. The only time in the entire Old Testament that Jesus is referenced as a lamb is in Isaiah, which is a prophetic book. And even in the New Testament, if you take the book of Revelation and separate it out, the idea of Jesus being the Lamb of God is only referenced three times. So it's not a common theme. However, when you get to the book of Revelation, things shift. And we find 31 times that Jesus is referred to in the book of Revelation as the Lamb of God. And, and so why is that? And, you know, there's lots of different reasons you can speculate, but I, I would simply say this. There is an emphasis in Revelation. There is an emphasis when things all get tied up. There's an emphasis in, in the story, the narrative of the gospel that wants us to remember the sacrifice of Christ, wants us to remember the great cost of our salvation. And if you'll note, when we read this passage this morning, it talked about there was a lamb who appeared to have been slain. In other words, it showed the marks of the sacrifice, even in heaven. Now, that's significant because I want you to realize this, that in heaven, the only thing that's going to remain of the sinful part of this world are the souls of the redeemed, and the scars of the Savior. Remember this. Our tears are wiped away. Our pain is wiped away. Our sins are wiped away. Even our memories of our evil are wiped away eventually in heaven. But what will remain are what Christ died for. Our souls. And the cost of that redemption. His scars. The Lamb of God who took upon himself the sins of all creation. 
You'll hear that story again Saturday night if you'll come and be a part of the Seder. Because in the Passover, it was the lamb who was perfect, who was firstborn, who was set apart and observed before it was offered as a sacrifice for the redemption of the children of Israel, for their freedom, for their salvation. And that was a picture of Christ that we are reminded of even to this day. So it is Christ who was selected. Then at the last part, we have the song, the great worship song of heaven. Worthy is the lamb. He is worthy of our praise. And so we see it played out there in the scripture. So there's a search, then there's a selection, then there's the song in Revelation chapter 5. Christ, the Lion of Judah, the Root of David, the Lamb of God, is the worthy one, and he is worthy of our worship. This is an exaltation of Christ. It's an exaltation of the cross, because it was on that cross that our Savior, the Lion of Judah, the Lamb of God, paid for our sins so that we could be reconciled with our Savior. So let's look at this passage real carefully, real quickly. The first thing we want to understand is the worthiness of our worship and our object of worship, who is Christ. First thing is this. He's worthy because of who he is. Because of who he is. So I've already explained. He is that representative, the only one that ever lived, from the, lying, from the loins and lineage of the priestly, I'm sorry, of the kingly tribe of Israel. He is the Lamb of God. He's the Lion of Judah. He's the Root of David. That is the fulfillment of Scripture. That is part of God's plan. And that's why, by the way, make no mistake, and I don't care what evangelical celebrity pastor says this, the Old Testament is absolutely relevant to the gospel of Christ. It needs to be studied. It needs to be included. It needs to be obeyed. It is part of the narrative. You can't just slash it off because there are pieces and parts that may offend people or may be difficult to interpret. And the, the people who do that are often confused or struggling with how to explain some of God's actions in the Old Testament, how he wiped out nations, how he made sure that, that, that the line through which Christ was to be born was safe. God was not a genocidal maniac in the Old Testament. God was an unconditionally loving, protective father who would not see his plan for our redemption thwarted by Satan's wily methods. And when you see it from that context, you understand some of the things that took place in the Old Testament. So be wary of those who would dismiss the Old Testament. It's integral to the gospel. It's necessary to the gospel. So, and I didn't mean to go on that rant, but every once in a while you just got to do it, right? All right, so I, I, I want to make sure you un understand that, that he's worthy. It is the fulfillment of the prophetic plan that God put in place at the foundations of the world that we would be reconciled with him. And he is worthy because of who he is. He is the Messiah. He is the Savior. He is the Son of God. He is the atoning one. He is the advocate. And all the things that he was pronounced to be in the Old Testament were confirmed in the New Testament and will be demonstrated in the future. The second thing, he's worthy because of where he is. Because of where he is. Look in verse 6. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. You know where he is? He's in the presence of God. He's in the throne room. He's before the mercy seat. He's where the action is. He's where the authority resides. Why? Because he is worthy. You don't get into the throne room of heaven. You don't get into the presence of God. You don't get into the position that we see laid out in Revelation 5 unless you're worthy, unless you are called, unless that is your responsibility. These are reserved seats. These are VIP tickets. These are exclusive positions. And we know that Christ is who he is. We know that Christ has done what he has done. We know that he is worthy of our worship. 
because where he is right now. He isn't in a grave. He isn't in a history book. He isn't in a place unknown. But he, the lamb who was slain, is in the heavenly throne room. So he's worthy because of where he is. The third thing is this. He's worthy because of what he's done. If you look in verse 9, he sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people from God from every tribe and language and people and nation. It was a worldwide redemption that took place, and that is what he did. He died for the sins of the world that the nations might know and be saved. I got to tell you, coming off a missions trip the way I have, I see that in ways I've... I needed reminded of. You know, one of the dangers we have in our comforts of Westernism, and we can't help that, right? We were born here. We didn't ask to be. I mean, this was God's plan for us. And I got to tell you, after staying in some of the places I've stayed and eating some of the things that I've eaten and, and, and experiencing some of the things I've experienced, thank you, Lord, for making me an American, all right? Because I am way too big of a sissy to be born anywhere else and survived. I mean, I thank God for this country. And I thank God for the comforts. I thank God I was born when I was born because even a hundred years ago or two or three or four hundred years ago, man, it was rough. And I thank God for that. But you realize this, the fact that we're born in the ease and comfort of this generation and of this nation and even of this location in this nation, because you gotta, you got to admit, Lake Norman is not exactly a rural village, right? We see things through very distorted lenses. We are not how the real world lives, all right? Our comforts, we're elites. <laughs> we really are. Not because we deserve it, but just simply because of the, of the common grace that exists, God's incomprehensible design. I, I don't know. Because I got to tell you, I could have been any one of the desperate people that I met, but here's the deal. Here's the deal. I'm afraid that in our Western mindset and our Western mentality, our absence of desperation has caused us to have a distorted view of God. The people who are desperate in their condition are more likely to appreciate the awesomeness of their salvation than are we who live in gilded palaces with silver spoons. And it may be, it may be, that the best thing that could happen for our culture and our nation is to experience some real desperation for who God is and what he has done. Maybe, maybe akin to that of our Ukrainian brothers and sisters this morning who are calling out to God in a way that none of us, or at least very few of us, have ever had to experience. Or the person who lives in the village of rat eaters that we saw in Uganda. Or the village of gypsy beggars that we saw in India who refuse to even own permanent homes but live in shacks and tents because their caste, their lot in life, is to be professional beggars and thieves. They know no other until they meet Jesus, until they meet Jesus, and then everything changes. And folks, whether you were born in a palace or you're born in a hut, whether you were born in a life of ease or a life of want, in the end, we all need Jesus, and we're all going to worship him. Because he alone is worthy of worship. He's worthy because of what he does. Verses 8 through 10, we saw that he shed his blood for us. And he now serves as our advocate. And he resides in the throne room of heaven, making intercession for us. And there is but one mediator between God and man. And it's not Pastor Dan and Pastor Ben. It's not the elders of Life Fellowship Church. It's not a bishop or a pope or a priest. There is but one mediator between God and man, and his name is Jesus. 
And it is Jesus who stands before the Father and says, they're forgiven, they're whole, they're righteous, they're redeemed. How can you say that? They're broken, they're fallen. Oh no, 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 no. They're not. They're restored. They're forgiven. The blood was shed. The price was paid. The penalty was fulfilled. The deal is done. Forgiven, redeemed, reconciled with our Father. That's what Jesus does for us, even now. And then he's worthy because of what he has accomplished. When you read verses 11 through 14, you see that the voices of myriads of myriads, thousands of thousands, united in a loud voice, say, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing and every creature in heaven and earth and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them, saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, it is done. Amen. And the elders of heaven, I don't know who they are, but they're obviously big wigs. The elders of heaven fell and worshiped as well. He is worthy because of what he has accomplished. And at some point in the future, every person, everything will recognize that. And their response will be as one. Worthy as a lamb, the worship will take place. So, yeah, he's worthy of worship. The cross was the triumphant object of how much God loves us, how holy God is, how much sin offends God, how far God would go for justice and for reconciliation. The cross symbolizes how arrogant man could be, how wrong Satan was and is, how deep grace goes, how rich mercy is, how costly our rebellion was, how patient God is, how valuable is our salvation. The cross symbolizes all that in our life. That's why we do look to the cross. That's why it is a symbol of significance. This week I was with the, the Repperts, Dan and Linda Reppert, who are on our missions team, very faithful members of the church. And, and we met with a lifelong missionary over lunch who had worked among some of the most oppressed believers in the most dangerous parts of the world. Most recently, he's lived for the last 17 years in Iraq and uh, working with the ISIS refugees, the Syrian refugees, with those who have been uh, run out of, of, of uh, parts of of uh, Kurdistan and, and the Kurdish areas of Turkey and so forth, and, and we're seeking refuge there. And, and he's seen some things. And again, just having 90 minutes worth of lunch with him was a, an education because he told us the stories of hardship and persecution and sacrifice that many of these people had endured simply because they love Jesus. During the course of our conversation, he kept alluding to those oppressed people and how they would identify each other during oppression, during violence. How they would signify their faith. How they would identify with Christ. And over and over again, he would mention as he told these stories, the cross. Some would wear it on a chain inside their shirt and then pull it out to see your response. Others would wear it outside at great risk. But we're kind of in your face about it. Some would tattoo it on their wrist. And at a moment when they felt like it was safe or possible, they'd lift their sleeve. And if the other person was a Christian too, the cross became a point of connection, a point of safety, a point of we're in this together. Over and over again, the common mark of their salvation, their hope, their love, their identity, their cause, their belief, their commitment was the cross in one of its many forms. But it still told the same story over and over again. It embodies why they love and trust and believe and were willing to suffer and even die for the one 
who had died on that symbol. So I want you to remember these things very quickly. Number one, the cross is the reminder to worship, but it's not an object of worship. It's a reminder to worship, not an object of worship. Now I know some faith traditions carry a cross and, and part of their expression is to kiss the cross. That's not something I'm comfortable with. It's not something I do, and I'm not criticizing those who do because I don't know their motivation and I'm not their judge. But I simply say this. I'm not going to worship the cross. I'm going to worship what it represents, and that is Jesus and his death. And by the way, if you'll notice on the crosses that we portray, and this is very consistent across evangelicals, is that it's an empty cross. And you know why it's an empty cross? Because our Savior is not on it. The tomb is empty. The cross is empty. But the throne room of God is full. And it's full with his authority and his presence. And so that's why we have empty crosses. But they are a symbol that ought to trigger for us an expression of reverence and worship for what it represents. So in that symbolic sense, it can be a trigger point for us to worship. And I hope it will be. The second thing is this. Our worship now is a rehearsal for the worship to come. Our worship now is a rehearsal for the worship to come. I want to kind of poke you a little bit, can I? Will you let me poke you just a little bit, knowing I love you and I care about you? But let me just say this. Some of us really need to learn to worship. A lot of us are pretty good at observing worship. Many of us are regular at attending worship. Many of us even declare that we do worship, but I'm not so sure that we do. We judge, we evaluate we criticize, we offer improvements, we, we analyze, but we don't really worship. No, instead, we stand with our hands in our pockets if we get there at all or if we get there on time, and we determine whether or not this is appropriate. Well, I don't like that song. I don't like who wrote that song. And that's too loud. It's too quiet. Why do we have this person here? Why do we have that person here? And so we become professional critics. When we really worship Jesus, we don't see anything but Jesus. And these people up here, or the songs, or whether it's on a screen or in a book, or all the other things that we get confused by, are irrelevant distractions if our heart and focus is really on Jesus. These are aids, they're tools, they're decorations. But real worship begins in our heart. And we ought to be prepared for it. And we ought to be sincere about it. And we ought to be engaged with it. I know this because I had a few people say, well, I don't know what this moment of silence is all about. You know, it kind of feels formal, a little Catholic-y. Okay. May, may, I, may I just suggest to you that it is an opportunity and I will tell you that with the way my brain is wired and the fact I've had a little bit too much espresso this morning, even today I ex experience this, when the moment of silence comes, my brain is like a ping pong ball. I hear a step. What does that mean it's over? How long has it been? Was it 45 seconds? Was it 50 seconds? How much longer is this going to go? I do it. I'm going to admit it to you. And I try to recapture that and say, what is the purpose for this moment? You know what the purpose of this moment is? For me to stop thinking like I'm a coke-addled ping-pong ball. That I'll just take a breath. And remember why I'm here. I'm not here to preach right now. I'm here to worship. I'm here to consider who God is and what he's done. I need to shut up sometimes and let God speak to me. I need to consider the scripture. It's an opportunity. Do I always succeed? No, I'm going to tell you I don't. I really don't. And do I sit over there sometimes and say, mm, that song was too long, or I don't know if I agree with those words. Do I do that? Yeah, I do it. I'm going to tell you I do it. Because if I don't, I'm lying to you. But is that right? I'll tell you this right up front. No, it's not real worship. Real worship is personal. And real worship is important. And what we do here is preparation for that day when we'll stand before God and no distraction that's ever been created by Satan will matter more than for us to say worthy is the Lamb.
Third thing, no one or no thing should impede us or supersede our genuine worship. Don't let somebody else rob you. Don't let something else rob you. Don't let some distraction, some minor irritation, some personal preference, some inconvenience, some debate you had in your car with your spouse on the way in, some disappointment you experienced last week, some unknown question. Don't let any of those things become so important that they rob you of looking into the face of he who died for you and saying, worthy is the lamb. When you do that, all those other things will fade away and you'll see them high and lifted up. Number four, worship is personal, not something that we can assign to others to do on our behalf. There are no paid worshipers. There are no proxy worshipers. The best member of the praise team cannot worship in your stead. It's either you or no one. Either you or no one. Number five, worship is active. It requires our participation and our presence. Presence in the moment, presence in the activity. And maybe a little self-discipline on my part, and may I suggest on all of our parts, as we prepare our hearts for worship, each week, each morning, wherever it is that worship occurs for us, a little preparation would change our entire entire approach to it. Because finally, worship is not about us. It is about him. It's not whether we like it or not. It's about him. It's whether or not it is convenient for us. It's about him. It's not whether or not we feel comfortable. It's about him. And when we focus on him, it changes everything. So after a month away from America, after a conversation like the one I mentioned earlier, I've had to re-examine my the depth or, or, or the lack thereof, I guess, of my own worship of he who died upon the cross, of he who sits in the throne room. I've eaten and visited and met with and journeyed with and listened to and prayed with and worshiped with those whose stories of life change were incredible because of the cross. That Indian military leader who used to serve in the Air Force who now having retired, is spending his life and his fortune on reaching his state for Christ with literally thousands of church planters that are under his leadership, taking the skills he learned in the Indian military and now using them to marshal an army to reach his people for Christ. When others were on the beach or living in villas, he has chosen to sacrifice because of the cross. The village pastor who I preached for a month ago today, who added to his heavy responsibility a dozen beautiful young ladies who were orphans. And he is their spiritual father, but also by proxy their earthly father, as he cares for them before they enter a rough real world. The Sudanese young man by the name of Gabriel who is called to reach his own people that I met, a descendant of Cush, who is sacrificing his future, but he doesn't call it sacrifice. He calls it investing. What a testimony. The Ugandan man who had been kidnapped by rebel soldiers. I just got a text from him this morning. At six years of age, he was captured by... Joseph Kony's army in Uganda and forced to serve on his behalf for three years. From six to nine, he murdered people. And then he found Jesus. And he found forgiveness. And today, he pastors and leads worship and shares the gospel. And I sat with him on a step outside of the place we were staying for an hour and a half one night and heard his story with tears. A story of redemption and of hope and of joy and release from a past that was more horrible than any of us could ever imagine. The man from Sierra Leone that Bob and I met who had no arms because of a rebel war and when he was 14, 15, They chopped off his one arm with a dull axe to the point that he lost consciousness before it was completely severed. And when he woke, his other one was gone too. 
a Muslim boy caught in the throes of civil war. The oldest son who was just out trying to find food for his family. But then rejected because of his disability. He found Jesus. Oh, and today, our friend Bombay, um, he's a pastor of multiple churches. He has 30-plus Ebola orphans that he grazes and lives with him. He earns his living by farming. And he's got a joy and a peace and a confidence in the Lord, unlike just about anybody I've ever met. Ask me, I'll show you his picture. Ask Bob, he'll show you his picture. What a story. The man from Zimbabwe who I met who's planting churches and villages while working a job full-time, but he's just desperate to reach his own countrymen. The 80-year-old woman who I watched Bob hand her very first Bible to because she had completed a three-month discipleship course. And she took it. And she hugged it. Like it was a chest of gold. A 16-year-old boy who was living on the streets that Bob and I got to hear his story as he got up with tears and testified of the crimes he had committed, the things he had seen. And then somebody told him about Jesus. And now he's sharing his testimony and others are finding Christ as well. The 15-year-old girl I baptized in Gulu, Uganda just a few weeks ago who had been dedicated to Satan as a baby, forced into sex trade as a little girl, literally possessed by Satan, dedicated by her parents to the dark one. And when she came back out of that water, that last demon, and I'm a Baptist, okay? I don't talk like this. <laughs> I'm Baptist grew up. I'm not Baptist now, but I grew up Baptist. But I will tell you, she got released from that demon that day. And in tears, she collapsed and wept. Freed, freed. Because of he who died on the tree. Worthy of our praise. Worthy of our adoration. Worthy of our sacrifice worthy of our love, worthy of our worship. Real people, just like you and me, the question is, do we really worship the Lamb of God who paid the price for all our sins?